Hi, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Scale by Intercom. As you've no doubt heard, Scale is now a dedicated space on the Inside Intercom blog, where you can find a wealth of materials, including podcasts, of course, that explore how businesses are driving growth through customer relationships. As part of this, we're now releasing a new Scale episode for you every second week, so you can continue to hear from a slate of brilliant leaders and thinkers about the strategies and frameworks that they've used to chart new paths for their customers and their companies. Our guest this week is Luke Diaz, Vice President of Customer Success at Clearbit. Like most companies, Clearbit have spent much of this year grappling with economic headwinds that have caused massive disruption to their business and their plans for growth. My discussion with Luke lays out exactly how he's guided Clearbit's customer success team through that storm and how a resolute focus on reducing churn has paid dividends, how automation has been a key factor in this, and why, in times like this, you really should focus on your customer. He shared a lot of great insights and advice with us. So without further ado, let's head over to the studio and hear from Luke. Luke, you are very welcome to the show today. We're delighted to feature you as part of this new ongoing series of scale. You've had a really impressive career to date with experience that takes in hedge funds as well as customer support. So to get us started, could you give us a quick rundown of how you came to be Clearbit's Vice President of Customer Success? Sure thing, Dee. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, uh, back to the hedge fund days. I worked out of a long short equity hedge fund in China where I had the experience of gallivanting around Beijing, Shanghai, taking care of our investors who had invested money with our hedge funds. That was about five, six years of my career. And then I got the temptation to join technology. And so I made my foray into technology as the first CSM at a company called Optimizely. And uh, I'm currently the VP of success at Clearbit. So it's been a really fun ride. And that first temptation, what was it that drew you to the industry then? You know, working in finance is a, can be a bit stodgy. You're wearing pinstripe suits. You're meeting with these very wealthy individuals. And it's a little bit more formal. And I think mm. what attracted me to technology and Silicon Valley was the informality of it and that the best idea always wins. And it's not so much who you know, but it's, it's what you know and the truth for the vast majority wins and the best ideas went out. So I loved, it was a little bit more informal and and more of a fun culture. Yeah, there's definitely very few, if any, pinstripe suits in the tech world. (laughs) (laughs) They're not a a good look. (laughs) But regardless of that, is there any of your hedge fund experience that you still apply to your work today? And and what would that be? You know, it's it's funny you ask that because I thought about one of our customers a few weeks ago. And this particular investor in our hedge fund was very particular. And he had invested a, a sizable amount of money, call it, it was around four or five million dollars with us. And we would send him our monthly newsletters, like, hey, here's how the hedge fund's going. Just want to keep you updated. And he sent me a note and he's like, Luke, I really don't need all this stuff from you. If you don't mind, just send me a text with your <laughs> monthly performance. And and I said, okay. And the lesson for me there was customer service can be a differentiator no matter what industry you're in and that each person has unique support requests. They want to be talked to and communicated in a different way. 
And so that was a lesson that's always stuck with me long after the hedge fund years. Gosh, that's interesting. But I suppose it makes sense that dealing with some of the rich people in the world would, would give you a really good sense of how to treat a customer yeah. Yeah. Um, or how they like to be treated. Yeah. And tell me about your executive reading series um, just before we move on, because you must be constantly picking up new ways of thinking while you're creating these blog posts. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I, it was, honestly, it was to keep, keep me up to speed. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you read a book you get really excited. And then someone asks you, yeah, so what was that book about? And there's <laughs> that awkward moment where you're trying to recall even like one sentence about what the book was about. And so I put myself on it and I said, look, if you're going to read a book and spend, the average book takes five to eight hours to read, I'm going to take some notes. And that turned into the DBT Ventures Executive Library, which now has you know, approaching 4,000 followers and, and readers. And it was really just to read two books a month, share the notes. And when you share something, it's kind of fun because people, it starts a conversation, right? And so that became like a little, a little side project just to keep me learning. And uh, so I'm never in that awkward moment again. <laughs> that's, that's as good a reason as any. <laughs> so aside from being essentially the Johnny Five of the, of the tech world, in your day-to-day life as ClearBit's Vice President of Customer Success. ClearBit, I guess they've, like everyone in the year 2020, it's been an interesting year. Um, and I think that's probably fair to say of most companies. But it's been particularly interesting for you. And, and I'd love to hear how automation has been so important to your team in particular in weathering the last six months or so. Absolutely. And, and there's no getting around it. This has been a fundamental shift in how people work and it's both professionally challenging and it's on a personal level also very challenging and so automation's played a key role because the covid-19 pandemic has really created two constraints one is about focus when economic headwinds exist you have to really really focus on your customer and and double down there and then the second constraint is efficiency you have to do more with less there's less budget, there's less resources. So there's both a focus and a efficiency constraint. Automation helped us with the latter, which is doing more with less. Specifically, what that means is we have a certain segment of customer, which tends to do okay with Clearbit, but they don't realize as much value as other segments. And so we leveraged automation to, instead of having a CSM own the relationship directly, we started to supplement and then eventually replace the communications with full automation. This even includes being able to quote DocuSign and close a renewal opportunity all without human involvement. So you can imagine the efficiency gains there. Of course, we have escalation paths when that doesn't work, but so far so good. And uh, automation has really been our key to driving efficiencies in uh, more scarce resourcing times. That's amazing. And we'll talk a little bit more about the importance of efficiency to a business later on. But let's chat a bit now about the kind of symbiotic relationship that exists, I think, between data and automation. I mean, you really can't have one without the other. So your business, Clearbit, is so, so important to that intersection. Yeah, it's been interesting. They, I think symbiotic is the perfect word. On the flip side, bad data can drive bad automation and excellent data can provide very thoughtful, 
very effective automation. And so I absolutely agree with the premise that they are symbiotic. Clearbit is essentially a data provider. So we stake our, our ground on the quality of the data we provide into other systems. And then we eat our own cooking. We use Clearbit data to drive our business, whether that's attracting new leads, whether that's taking care of prospects, and then eventually as customers to uh, serve them using clean, relevant data for them. And then thinking a little bit more about that intersection, where do you see content fitting in? Because that's very much part of the relationship as well. Yeah, we're, I, uh, I'm very grateful to have a, a content team at Clearbit who produces very fun, much like the content at Intercom where it's fun, it's engaging, it's diverse media, whether it's a podcast or a, a fun blog post or a video. And so we do work closely with the content team to ensure that one, that message is getting out there and the customer success team can help give a further amplified voice to the great content that's being produced. And we also have been doing quite a bit of content creation ourselves on the customer success team. So we've been recording a lot of help videos, filling in the gaps to create lightweight, bite-sized content so that as a Clearbit customer, you can learn about enrichment or reveal or whatever product simply by watching a three to five minute video and help us create resources that drive that automation. And you'd mentioned to me previously that in a certain sense, you've over-indexed on content on your back end because at the end of the day, anyone can set up an automated email flow. But if that content isn't tailored, you're not going to get that important engagement. Precisely. I think the content and the structure of that content, whether it's the blog post about a particular use case or a particular industry, we've seen a lot of interesting data on our end about what resonates with whom. And so in this ambiguous word personalization, which I'm not quite sure anyone can define precisely, but showing the right thing to the right person at the right time is kind of the holy grail of marketing and service. And so if you have lots of unstructured content, it's hard to get it in a position where it's getting to the right person at the right time. So you have to have the latent data attributes, the, the, the size of the company, the industry, even the functional breakdown of your customer is very important because a head of marketing ops might not have the same interests as the head of sales. And so, yeah, respecting each person's individual interests have been challenging. And um, I'm hoping to spend more time on that versus the pure content creation. That makes sense. And actually what, what you're describing there of that getting the right content to the right person at the right time, it really marries with what Intercom are trying to do at the moment with the customer support funnel. But to stay on, on the automation theme for a little bit, Luke, before we move on, I know you mentioned the feedback loop that you've created to quote and sign a contract. But what other automation tools have you leveraged over the past six months to, to continue to drive the business forward? Yeah, I'd be happy to share some of those. One email tool we're particularly fond of is customer.io. That drives a lot of our onboarding sequences such that when you become a Clearbit customer, you obviously have to do certain things. Like Intercom, you have to set up the product, configure it appropriately, make sure you know all systems are go, and then go live. And so we, we've powered a onboarding implementation flow which uh, has some business rules built in such that if you haven't done 
certain things that you need to do. It just it follows up on those certain tasks. And so that has been very helpful in making sure no balls get dropped in very busy times. Um, so onboarding and implementation is, is one use case. That's the main one that comes to mind at the moment. We're also doing more automated outreach on behalf of the CSM in the midlife cycle. When we looked at our engagement patterns, we found that we were very active early on and very active at the closer to the renewal. And that made me kind of uncomfortable because there's six months where value sure. realization should be increasing. We, so we saw a dip in CSM engagement and we were able to fill some of that gap with automated outbound emails from the CSM suggesting new use cases based on their industry and their product. Okay, that's brilliant. So it's, it's a way of keeping people engaged throughout the cycle of their contract. Yeah, exactly. And then in terms of I, when that failed, you know, I mean, I think, I suppose the thing about the last six months that has been so challenging is that customers are under pressure themselves commercially. So that email from a CSM isn't necessarily going to save the business because churn has become a much bigger problem than it would have been this time last year. How have Clearbit addressed that issue of churn? Because I know you've done some automation internally that has helped with that. Yeah, that is a very hot topic. And I imagine a lot of the listeners could relate to the dynamic we're all facing where there's a lot of fiscal pressure, a lot of economic pressure, and everyone's being asked by their CFO or their COO to stack rank their, their softwares and, and cut if need be. Some of the things we've done to combat those challenges have to do with operational improvements. We've also created some data science models to help us save or invest in the right set of accounts that could be at risk. And so I could, I could perhaps dig into some of those two categories more specifically. Yeah, would absolutely love that. Would love to hear about Red Accounts, actually. Sure. Yeah, Red Accounts is a, simply a weekly meeting. It's about an hour and a half where every CSM has nominated a certain amount of their portfolio that needs some sort of help. Maybe they have a product issue and our engineering team need, needs to get on it. Maybe they're struggling financially and they could benefit from a discount or some flexibility. Maybe they had a lot of turnover and we need to re-onboard the new team or whoever's taking over and we need to find out who owns Clearbit in a turnover scenario. So they bring their biggest churn challenges to this meeting. And it's not to blame or point fingers. It doesn't feel like a pipeline review. Mm -hmm. It feels like crowdsourced problem solving. Um, to make it fun, we, we have a theme and we change our virtual backgrounds on Zoom to like <laughs> music or summer. So the, it, it feels much less acerbic than uh, the name implies. And you pose your challenge. You're like, I'm really blocked here. I haven't heard from this customer in four email outreaches. What should I do? And then the team chimes in and says, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you leveraged LinkedIn Sales Navigator Team Link? Have you filed a support ticket? Maybe there's a back door that you could get this person's attention. And it becomes about creative problem solving. Um, so that's been effective. And it's helped reduce churn by about 15 to 20% last wow. quarter. And then you assign businesses a churn probability score. Is that right? Correct. We had the, the benefit of kicking off a data science project at the beginning of 2020. And the goal was simple. Help us figure out which customers have a high likelihood of churning so that we can invest in those customers. 
without going too much into the data science weeds, we basically had a bake-off between two machine learning models. One was Random Forest, and the other was XGBoost. Um, so if there's any data science listeners, I, I imagine you've heard of XGBoost, which is kind of the darling and, and recently won a uh, prestigious data science award. It turns out that the Random Forest model was actually more predictive and more valuable than XGBoost for our use case. And it took into account latent attributes like Alexa rank, Twitter followers, employees. It also took into account product usage and then CSM engagement. How much are we talking to the customer? And uh, the output of all that, D, was we have a likelihood to churn prediction score in Salesforce. I simply run the Python notebook and upload the data to Salesforce on a tactical level. And then that helps the uh, CSMs prioritize. Uh, it also creates a fun dynamic where you have a quantitative yin to the qualitative yang, such that if a data science churn prediction scores above 35% our threshold, the CSM has to convince the whole team that <laughs> right. this account is not at risk if they haven't previously flagged it. So it's, it's kind of a nice one-two punch between CSM insights and uh, machine learning. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking that you are obviously going to find churn risks there that perhaps it might not have occurred to the CSM based on instinct or their understanding of the account. But this throws up some interesting data, insights that you actually can shine a light on it then. In a way, that's kind of the perfect marriage of how human instinct can, and, and knowledge can work alongside automation and data. Yes, it's, it's been a fun uh, quantitative safety net for our, for our own intuition. <laughs> and it's 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 actually working for you. It saved you quite a deal of of revenue. It has the data science model has caught and helped us save a few hundred thousand dollars. So it's been that's, a meaningful to the business. That's that's a really innovative measure to to undertake. And I, and I love also how you're doing it with the team of almost having like people step up and, and having to fight to say why, why they think a, a customer yeah. will churn. It, it does add a bit more of that kind of that human instinct, I think, which is the word that you used uh, and it's the best one. Mm -hmm. Aside from those measures, like, you know, taken all together, how successful have they been for Clearbit in retaining profitability over the last while? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, profitability is an interesting one because obviously you have to manage your costs and you have your gross margins and then your, your net profit. So I guess it depends what form of profitability you're referring to. But in, in SaaS, as we all know, a lot of the, the unit economics are based on customer acquisition costs. And when do you kind of break even, if you will, given the investment of customer support, obviously your Amazon, your Amazon web services bill and so forth. So as a result, as churn goes down, your customer lifetime value goes up. They're inversely correlated. So the more churn you can reduce, the more unit profitability you can sustain because those customers are staying with you longer and realizing more, they're paying you more revenue over time. And so we track all of those metrics to make sure that we are both mitigating churn, but also keeping an eye on cost. We do have some customers that happen to tax our big query and AWS. So they, they're outliers, if you will. So we're actually losing money on some of those customers. But in the end, um, 
you know, it's kind of like why Amazon will send you a set of weights and they'll lose a ton of money on that shipment. Um, so we want to, we want to be the, the data provider that's not too myopic and, um, definitely uh, optimized for long-term profitability. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Staying with that kind of idea of, of moving from growth to churn then, I'd love to chat a little bit about Clearbit X, uh, which you guys launched just late last year, back in autumn. And um, For anyone who's not familiar with it, can you give us a little bit of an explainer on what Clearbit X offered and how it differs now, actually, from when you first launched it to before COVID unfolded? Yes, just... Just to give a very brief history, uh, Clearbit as a data provider, we actually started as purely APIs. And so mm-hmm. our founder and CEO, Alex McCaw, was an early engineer at Stripe, and he wanted to do for data what Stripe did for payments. And so we started as purely APIs, grew nicely, developed products that configured and integrated directly with Salesforce and Marketo and Pardot and so forth. And our, um, our product offering kind of blossomed. Clearbit X is the I guess the third phase you could say of our product's evolution where for the first time you can actually import your own data from any source into ClearbitX to enrich the targeting functionality and the targeting capabilities of ClearBit. One example of this and where we've seen most of the early success is doing B2B targeting on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So if you're a marketer and you're trying to get customers to join your webinar or sign up, uh, a lot of that budget's going to LinkedIn. And we've heard from the market that it's been challenging to get scale at a reasonable cost on LinkedIn. And uh, this isn't a, a slight on LinkedIn. It's just so, sort of the economic challenges that, that prevail. And so we created a platform that integrates with Facebook and Instagram, and you can use Clearbit's data to do B2B targeting on Facebook. And so that's been one of the really interesting use cases. We call that Clearbit X ads or advertising. But we have heard in the light of COVID, the shift from growth at all costs or growth, I would need to grow, 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 to I need to grow more efficiently. So that's been the biggest switch 
in our value prop. And so instead of talking about total lead volume or total opportunity pipeline, we're hearing more feedback about, I need to get the cost of my confirmed MQLs down, or I need to have higher quality leads for the same or less amount. So that's been definitely a switch we've seen from growth to efficiency in light of the pandemic headwinds. That makes sense. And it's it's helping people harness the dataverse to drive efficiency as opposed to drive growth at the moment is the kind of key message there. That's correct. And we'll see how it all shakes out as the as the uh, the, the the world health situation unfolds. We'll we'll be watching that closely. Well, this is it. It's interesting yeah. to me that you mentioned kind of LinkedIn and Facebook. I wonder has that blurring of boundaries between home and office affected, you know, the fact that there's now more B2B businesses wanting to advertise on Facebook at all? You know, it's been interesting. Um, In this new operating environment, (laughs) there's people taking board meetings in their bedroom, right? And in no time in history has there been such a almost recognizable blurring of your personal and professional life. We have a hypothesis that we'll continue to see that across the digital medium where hey, maybe, maybe seeing a business ad on Facebook isn't so strange mm-hmm. when you're taking a conference call from your house. In addition to LinkedIn, which is a very strong channel and avenue for a lot of advertisers, we actually believe that that is going to expand. And a B2B targeting on Facebook has been historically very hard due to some data schema challenges. And thankfully, we've been under able to unlock some of those. But yeah, we're optimistic about the blurring of the home and office, expanding the receptivity, if you will, of an audience willing to click on a B2B ad on Facebook. And have there been other ways that you've noticed that the work from home reality has affected how people use your data in any way? Well, one of our products leverages IP intelligence to help you know who is visiting your website. Obviously in a work from home environment, IP targeting capabilities, they dropped off dramatically when everyone started working from home because we didn't know what IP block you were on. Yeah. So that, that was a big challenge. And a lot of people that do account-based marketing or targeting are facing this exact challenge because we're on our home networks, not our corporate networks. And so that has taken a very special engineering effort to blend basically our people and our company graphs to basically respect, hey, this is a person who works at this company, but they work from this home IP block, you have to appreciate that targeting, at least by IP block, is is much different than it was four months ago. Gosh, that's really, really interesting. It's not something that would have occurred to me, but the minute you you say it, it makes sense. And staying on the topic then of working from home, I'd love to hear how your team have been getting on, Luke, because I think of all the roles in a typical tech org, customer success teams have had a difficult task over the past while, especially dealing with stressed out customers and having to do it in their own, in their own bedrooms or own living rooms. So how are you supporting them and maintaining kind of sensitivity for the emotional component of their work? Dee, I'll be honest, it's been hard. Um, When we all started working from home, there's both a morale drop, a lot of people trying to get their new, you know, their home offices set up. And we saw morale drop very significantly across the board. And that manifested in activities. We saw emails, calls pretty much drop 30 35% across the board. And so 
thankfully we work at Clearbit. I, I'm grateful to work for a company that values what we call conscious leadership based on the, the fantastic book, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend. Our leadership team was very thoughtful and they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to bring some intentionality to this work from home challenge and we're going to try and solve it together. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to try and solve this together. So for example, they started rolling out these very interesting programs to help our Clearbit team improve our energy, our, our psyche, our, um, our morale. One example of that, many thanks to our CMO, Matt Sorensen. He does, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a, a unique experience uh, because it's a, essentially a, a breathing exercise, leveraging the Wim Hof method. Um, wow. So he runs, he runs a, twice a week, he does an hour-long breathwork class where you're doing Wim Hof method. You're, laying, you're on a Zoom call with 40, 50 of your coworkers <laughs> basically hyperventilating. <laughs> and it's, you hasn't done that at some point over the last six months. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got to do it because it, it, breaks, it breaks up the day. It is incredibly restorative because of the oxygen levels that infuse the blood. And uh, when I tried it last week, D, I'm not kidding. I held my breath for three and a half minutes after this experience. It was insane. Wow. And what's the uptake for that like, Luke? Do most people get involved? Yeah, so Clearbit, we have just over 100 employees or so. So there's anywhere from 10 to 40 or 50. So I'd say 10 to 40% of the company attends one of these a week, which is a really good showing in a remote-only environment. And just coming back to that theme of conscious leadership, the leadership team had everyone read this book and so I think it's kind of in our DNA of, hey, we, we're having some really tough challenges. They're not just professional. We're all adjusting to this unique environment. We have to manage, we have to deal with the, the, the team, not the problem. And I, I, it's been nice to see them investing in these really fun programs to keep things light and bright in a somewhat gloomy time in history. You know, that's really nice. And I think especially like if, if a book like Conscious Leadership has really resonated with your leadership team, what better way to to make that really clear to the people that work with them and for them then by sharing it, you know? Very much so. Before we wrap up, Luke, to, and actually to stay on the topic of reading, I know you do your executive reading series that you mentioned earlier in our chat. And I'd love to know what your top recommendation for customer success leaders would be if you had to pick one book. Ooh, that's a good question. You can see the full list at dbtventures.com in the library. There's so many to choose from. I think in this environment, D, I'm going to go with Deep Work by Cal Newport. Okay. I definitely wholeheartedly agree conscious leadership, but since I already mentioned that, I'm going to choose Deep Work by Cal Newport, which was first recommended to me by an engineer. And the premise of that book is that when you look at the data, we only are actually doing about two to three hours of actual work in a given day, given the amount of softwares and task switching that the typical knowledge worker does. And so the premise behind deep work is you need to block two, three, even four hour blocks of time to get beyond the Slack messages in the email inbox to actually get deeper into problems to produce something like a podcast or something that's more tangible and substantive. And the only way to do that 
is through deep work. And so uh, I, I found that to be a very useful read in this time. Okay, great. Well, we'll definitely link to that book as well on the blog accompanying this and anything else that you mentioned. Before we let you go though, Luke, where can our listeners keep up with you and with Clearbit? I, I love doing coffee chats and just LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Just Luke R. Diaz on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. But yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation if, if any, anyone found this useful. And um, Dee, thank you so much for, uh, for hosting me. It's been a, a true pleasure. Oh, absolutely, Luke. It's been great chatting to you today. Thank you so much. Can I come visit you in Dublin? You absolutely can. I'll show you some of the decent pubs to go to. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.